Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Carol Zerniel, is on special assignment today. She serves as chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging. And they, unfortunately, well, bad for us, good for her, scheduled a board meeting at the exact time we are recording this program. And her responsibilities there mandated that she hang out with NCOA, which is okay. So we fly solo today, and uh, we'll be able to do that and have a chance to talk with some very interesting people on Caregiver SOS On Air. Our guest today is Annette Juba, a licensed clinical social worker. Annette serves as Deputy Director of Age of Central Texas, and she joins us on our Caregiver SOS On Air Hotline from Austin. Hey, Annette, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Ron. It's great to be here this afternoon. For those who are not familiar with Age, give us the 411. All right, I appreciate that opportunity. AGE is a regional nonprofit organization based in Austin, Texas. Our mission is to uh, provide expert solutions to the challenges of aging, and we do that through six programs of direct service. Um, I, I like to think about all of these programs as helping people stay connected with each other, with friends and family, with their neighbors, with the digital world, uh, and we do everything from uh, operate two adult day centers in Central Texas, the only two licensed adult day centers in Central Texas. We loan out durable medical equipment for free. We have a weekly uh, program for people who are in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, they can come each week and engage in really cognitively stimulating activities and then uh, have a professionally facilitated support group and talk about what it's like to live with this diagnosis. Uh, we also teach classes for caregivers. Uh, we have a caregiver resource center, so caregivers can call us and ask questions and we will help point them in the right direction. And finally, we have an age computer lab, and that's seniors, teaching seniors everything from um, how to turn on your computer and edit a Word document to how to um, take digital photographs and edit and share those with the world. You know, it's there interesting. Not a dull moment here. It's interesting because ageism plays a role. The stereotype is, well, older people don't know computers. They can't adapt to computers. Uh, but the fact is, uh, uh, number one, the population of older people is turning over pretty quickly. 10,000 baby boomers a day turn 65, and nearly all of them are computer literate. And for folks who are older than that, uh, what do you find experience-wise adjusting to the use of computers? Well, I think what we see is that people are really eager to know and to be savvy in what you know, the rest of the world is spending all of our hours on. Um, and so they are eager to come to the classes and learn about Facebook and Pinterest and genealogical records online and how to save your medical records online. Um, you are right, there is this sense of ageism, but um, the students who come to our class maybe just need a little bit longer or need 
need uh, the concepts explained not in the most uh, you know tech heavy way they need it explained pretty concretely some of those uh, computer tech terms are a little bit foreign um, but we find that people are really eager um, and really enjoy the classes in fact they they post each month a gallery of all of the uh, photographs that they've been editing in the photo editing classes and I am quite jealous of some of these people's skills they are that's pretty they cool are beautiful now, how did you, Annette Juba, transition from licensed clinical social worker to serving as deputy director of AIDS? What was that like for you? Um, that is an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I spent most of my career working in nursing homes and in community-based programs for people um, with uh, memory loss. Um, and then I saw this job opening at AGE. They were looking for a deputy director, somebody to oversee all of their programs of direct service. And um, I liked the challenge and thought that would be a way to exercise some new skills um, and had admired AGE for so long. They just offer a, a wealth of services out there and make our services very easy for people to use. So it was exciting to join a great program and is exciting to develop some new skills. Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Our special guest today, Annette Juba. She is the Deputy Director of Age of Central Texas, hangs out primarily up in Austin. Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment today. So it is me and Annette, and so far we're doing quite well. Thank you very much. Uh, Annette, as you think about uh, the society we live in today, clearly an aging society, more people now 65 and over than 18 and under. How does that change needs and delivery of services in a community like Austin? Well, I think one of the things that we think is that uh, it just means that this need is going to be um, much more apparent or much more on the surface. Um, you know, when the older adult population was smaller, it was not quite so um, obvious people who needed a little bit extra time. Um, it was not quite so obvious how transportation was going to affect people or our lack of good transportation options. So one of the things that age is really thinking about is as there are more and more older adults, as there are more and more caregivers, how can we do more and more to support them? I think the second part to that is that with so many people aging, um, family caregivers are going to be called on um, increasingly. Our our health system doesn't have enough people and doesn't have enough money to pay for all of the care that family caregivers are providing. So we're going to need to um, support these family caregivers because they are crucial to health care delivery for older adults. And of course, part of the problem, we are going to be running out of family caregivers in the not too distant future. How do we fill that need? Well, I think one of the things that we have to do is um, help people who are family caregivers are going to be family caregivers be as effective as possible. So have much more support out there for them. Um, give them concrete tools to, to do their job. Um, I think we are all going to have to think differently about how we take care of older adults. Maybe concepts like adult daycare, which in some respects is a hard idea. Um, it's hard to think about 
going someplace during the day because you can't be home by yourself, but maybe we are going to need to be more savvy in developing daytime programs for older adults who um, can't be home alone, don't have a family caregiver, but need some sort of added support. And if you look at the population in Austin and elsewhere, Mm -hmm. uh, that need for uh, daytime care, especially if a caregiver or a family member who's providing care needs to work to uh, continue to support the family, uh, that daytime care is a lifesaver. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a... um it's hard for people to start sometimes coming, but what we find is once people start and get into the program and meet friends and have peers, that they just really enjoy that daily interaction. I know that this idea of aging in place is what really drives a lot of people as they think about uh, aging. Um, and aging in place at home is great, but it can also be a very lonely experience. And we were, humans are built to engage with other people. Um, so adult daycare, I think, really is the best of both worlds. You, you are still living in your comfortable environment, and yet you have an opportunity to be around other people who share your, your outlook, who share your experiences, who have maybe a similar history to you. And as a licensed clinical social worker, uh, you can tell us what is the impact on an individual who is alone and lonely and has no social connections? You know, when I was a student getting my master's in social work, the single fact that made the most biggest impression on me was that the number one mental health problem in the United States is not a disease with a long name that requires medications that you can't pronounce, but it is loneliness. Um, And recent research shows that people who are lonely, um, and that means people who, who don't have as much social interaction as they would like, are more likely to um, be in poorer health than their counterparts who are more engaged. Because uh, they are more likely to need more assistance during the day, and they're more likely to die sooner than their counterparts who are more connected. How does loneliness produce those results? Um, I think that um, loneliness is stressful on a body since we were all built to be around other people, since our brains thrive on connections with other people. Um, Not having that opportunity is stressful, and um, as we learn more about stress, we know that the physical stress response in the body is to break down the immune system, and eventually that just takes a toll that you know, an older adult can't overcome. Yeah, it's interesting. I I recently uh, connected with uh, an older person who uh, needed help on something, and and, uh, out of the blue, she uh, uh, sent me a message, and I got back in touch with her and and called her, and we talked for a while. Uh, And since then, uh, she has called multiple times, and Mm. uh, my wife said, you know, she's just lonely. You're going to have to, you know, talk to her and maybe come to a place where you can a connector with others in, in her own community because what you're seeing is somebody who's finally latching on to another human being. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's you you mentioned ageism at the very beginning. I think that older adults, what I understand, are very conscious of um, not keeping up sometimes in this really fast-paced world. And it's intimidating to try to get out and keep up with technology innovations and, you know, fast traffic and the news cycle. Um, And so 
when someone finds a connection that feels comfortable, um, it's very tempting to really want to build that connection. Um, and that's what AGE hopes to do and uh, is to help people build good, comfortable connections so they don't feel like they have to, um, like they can't keep up with what's going on in the world. I met some of your folks, uh, I guess, going back several years now when the Wellmet Charitable Foundation, I emceed their giving uh, uh reception where we gave some money to age and other organizations uh, and at the time uh, I, I wondered and you can answer this question <laughs> I will the, do my best the name is so perfect uh, how did you hit on it age age well um age started out as austin groups for the elderly back in 1986 our founders were two prominent austinites uh, bert kruger smith and willie kasurik and they had an idea that Austin needed a place, needed one place where an older adult could go and take care of many different needs so that many different agencies would be housed in one building. And the story that I have been told is that uh, Bert and Willie went out and they bought this building that we now office in, and they went home and told their spouses what they had done. Wow. Um, Yes, but from those days of just being um, the landlord, Austin Groups for the Elderly was mainly the landlord of the building. Right. Um, we have gradually taken on operating um, these six programs of direct service. So we still own our building. We still lease it out to other nonprofits, uh, lease out the unused space, but we are a direct operator ourselves. That's it would have been cool. great to have known Bert and Willie. They must have been quite characters if they could have gone out and signed a mortgage without telling their spouses first. <laughs> yeah. That's how you spell divorce. Now stick with yeah. me just a minute. We're talking with uh, Annette Juba, who's the deputy director at AGE, and we're going to talk a bit about their rescheduled caregiver conference, which recently completed uh, its sessions, rescheduled thanks to Harvey. We get updates on what came out of that conference right here on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Be there. And immediately following WellMed Radio, you hear Caregiver SOS on air, which is who we are right now on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment. So it is just moi. And we're talking with Annette Juba, licensed clinical social worker, deputy director of Age of Central Texas. Got an update on the six kinds of programs they run and some of the activities they're engaged in. And we're going to turn now to Striking a Balance, the caregiver conference that 
uh, just recently uh, was held. It was rescheduled due to Harvey, but it is now in the books. And uh, Annette, tell us about the conference. Well, uh, you are right. Hurricane Harvey um, messed up all of our plans back at the end of August. Um, luckily, Austin wasn't directly affected, but at the time we weren't sure what was going to happen. So we opted to not hold it in August and held it this past Saturday, the 2nd of December. Um, and we had about 150 caregivers who came out. We offered uh, six different breakout sessions this year, along with a keynote speaker, uh, Jane Hamilton, who has a program called Partners on the Path, and her whole goal is to help caregivers understand what it means to be resilient and uh, understand how they can build some of that resilience. It was a great, great day. Um, we had many caregivers who have come year after year after year to this conference, um, and we also had a lot of new ones. Uh, I think the funniest story I heard was from a caregiver who told me she initially came to our conference um, because she figured she could listen to any old boring speaker for two hours as long as it gave her a free lunch and a break. And she showed up at that first conference and found that, indeed, she got the break and the free lunch, but the speaker was awesome. And so she keeps coming back year after year. It's interesting because so many folks who are caregivers uh, don't take time for themselves. Uh, you're the social worker, uh, the therapist, and I'm not. Uh, but part of it is guilt. They, they feel guilty if they step away from what they see as their job. Yes, but I think that I like that you use the word caregiving as a job because I think if caregivers um, think about this new role as really something new that they are taking on that's not just part of being a good daughter or a good husband or the dutiful son, um, uh, we know that caregivers who who really define what are all of these new roles I'm taking on are more likely to um, ask for help or seek support um, rather than just assume that it all has to fall on their shoulders. Is it still true that folks who uh, become caregivers often fall into it when they get the call from the ICU? A lot of times, yes. And what um, what we find happens in that case is you get the emergency call in the middle of the night, you jump into action, you know, your fight or flight response is operating at full power, um, and oftentimes uh, caregivers end up making the most drastic decision that they can um, just out of not having time um, to really research what all of the options are. I think one of the um, ideas that age really tries to get across is that uh, family members who start educating themselves about what their older family members are facing and learning about what resources are in their community are able to make a much more um, nuanced response and really help find the support that really specifically matches an older adult's need rather than jumping to the most drastic thing uh, imaginable because it's just what pops into your mind first. But very often uh, the uh, caregiver feels as if uh, they're the lone ranger, that uh, there is no help out there for them, and that asking for help is a sign of weakness. Absolutely. Well, I, um, 
I liked some of the wording that Jane Hamilton used this weekend. She was our keynote speaker. She talked about looking for those supports in your system and looking to family, but she was careful to delineate blood family from family of choice. And she really talked about um, think about your neighbors, think about your church, think about um, your extended community and who out there might be a resource. She also has this great um, checklist that she encourages caregivers to use when they are thinking about what kind of help that they need, um, which I really think breaks down the kinds of help that would be beneficial and makes it easier to ask for help. A lot of times what I hear from caregivers is, you know, people will say, tell me what I can do. and. It's, it's hard to think specifically in that moment, um, and you're not sure what, what kind of help they're equipped to give. Uh, Jane has a list she calls a tired list, and she has a description for each letter of the word tired. She said when caregivers think about the help they need, they should think about first the tasks that they need help with. Sometimes that's the most obvious thing. You know, who can go to the grocery store? Who can mow the yard? Who can drive to the doctor's appointment? Um, but she said they should also ask about information or think about information. What, what, what knowledge do they need? And is there somebody out there who could do the Internet research or read the books or ask the questions and, and help get them the information that caregiver needs? And where, um, is, where is Jane Hamilton based? Jane Hamilton is based in Philadelphia. Uh, her company is called Partners on the Path, and she is a very um, outspoken and renowned advocate for the needs of family caregivers, for this idea that family caregiving is a job. It is not just something a good daughter does, um, and that as a job, people need specific skills, and she wants to help caregivers develop those skills. And when you talk about uh, who becomes a caregiver, uh, it still overwhelmingly is women, but men also are caregivers. Increasingly, we're seeing men as caregivers. I think one of the striking facts that I learned this past weekend is that, um, you know, we've all heard the 46 million people are family caregivers, um, but I heard that fact skewed a little differently that 30% of every household in the United States includes a caregiver. So if you think about one out of three houses, apartments, condominiums, townhouses, um, has a family caregiving situation going, going on. Um, she also told us that 20% of the workforce is currently serving as a caregiver, and that is a huge juggling job, not only your own life, but your professional life and a family member's life. And, and for those who are caregivers, many give up an inordinate, inordinate amount of income. They often leave their job and provide caregiving at home, and to date, the society hasn't figured a way to replace that income. Exactly, and that's where we're going to see this problem just compounding in the future. As people are leaving the workforce to serve as family caregivers, then they will have fewer financial resources when they themselves are aging. Exactly. Uh, and, and yet uh, we haven't gotten state legislatures or, or Congress to address this issue. We need to find a way to compensate caregivers. We do need to find a way to compensate caregivers. Um, I don't know the answer to 
to the funding and to the politics of it all, but I do um, really believe in the the other kinds of support that WellMed is offering through this education, that AGE offers through education, and through things like adult daycare. That's where um, adult daycare could really help a caregiver stay in the workforce longer, still fill that role of being a good caregiver, of providing that direct hands-on care, but be able to take care of them their own self at the same time. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the impact in the workplace of someone who suddenly becomes uh, a caregiver because it does affect their productivity. It often affects the way their employer sees them and can affect their ability, uh, even if they choose to stay employed, uh, their ability to get promoted. Exactly. I think in the workforces, especially where you see um, this this uh, metaphor of caregivers as the shadow workforce played out, employees uh, don't want to jeopardize their job. They don't want their employer to think that they can't um, take care of all their responsibilities, so they're not likely to talk openly about the support they need or the support they're looking for or what's going on. Those are the uh, caregivers, I think, who really just just uh, put their head down and keep putting one step, one foot in front of the other um, going forward and have a hard time accessing outside supports. And can age provide help, guidance, uh, counseling for folks who are faced with that workplace dilemma? We do. So uh, one of AGE's values is to be an agency that is easy for people to use. So our Caregiver Resource Center um, is 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 just that, a place where a caregiver can call and ask a question. People do not need to be clients of ages. They don't need to qualify to be able to get information from us. We do ask for a little bit of demographic information so that we can say to our funders, we have responded to this many people and this zip sure. code about this sort of issue. Um, but we try to be very easy for people to use. Now, you're in Austin, but uh, for folks in San Antonio or elsewhere, uh, the basic understanding of these issues is the same. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, we, we touched a little bit earlier on the difficulty of the politics these days about supporting caregivers, but one of the great programs that the United States has are the Area Agencies of Aging, which do cover blanket the entire United States. So um, there is something for everyone out there to help support caregivers. Now stay with me just a minute. We're going to come right back to you. We're talking on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline with Annette uh, Juba, who is a licensed clinical social worker and deputy director of AGE of Central Texas. Uh, we want to follow up some more on their Striking a Balance Caregiver Conference, which recently completed its uh, uh, program just a weekend or so ago. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is on special assignment today. So you got me on Caregiver SOS on-air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We are so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment today. I'm here with our special guest, Annette Juba. She's Deputy Director of Age of Central Texas, based up in Austin, providing services, information, and resources for caregivers. And we're going to check out uh, their website as well as more information on their recently completed conference, Striking a Balance uh, Caregivers Conference. And Annette, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you all have a website that folks can check out? We do, Ron. Our website is uh, www.ageof.com. 
centraltx.org. And for anybody who's interested in calling our Caregiver Resource Center, that direct number is 512-600-9275. Now, on radio, you get to give phone numbers twice. Ah, uh, perfect. Well, here we go. The phone number is 512-600-9275. That will put a caller directly into the office of Becky McGinnis, who is our caregiver support manager here at AGE. And if you don't have that number written down, you can just go to the website and find it as well. And if you didn't write down the website, all you have to do is Google AGE of Central Texas, and it'll pop up. Absolutely. So, Annette, uh, again, back to the conference, six major breakout sessions you had Uh, Janie Hamilton, who was your keynote speaker, Uh, what were some of the findings, conclusions, recommendations, uh, and and calls for action that came out of the conference? Well, she talked a lot about this idea of resilience, of how caregivers can um, stay strong and stay healthy and stay positive and stay forward-looking while they are juggling all of these responsibilities. And I was really interested that one of the key components of Resilience is self-reliance, but self-reliance doesn't necessarily mean having to do it all yourself. It, it is the idea that you know you'll get through, but that you are also able to access supports out in the community. So sometimes people think of self-reliance as that it's, it's all on me. And uh, Jane was very careful to let us know that being self-reliant just means you know you'll get through and you know how to access the supports that will help you do that. And one of the things that caregivers uh, too often uh, uh, don't do is care for themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. I um, have quite literally been told by a caregiver, don't tell me any more to take care of myself. Don't you know that I have, you know, how much I have to do? Um, And that is a hard mindset to get past. But we talked a little bit earlier about loneliness and, and the stress that comes from that and how it erodes the immune system. That exact same thing happens to a caregiver who is under stress. And so while it might be really tempting as a caregiver to say, I can't take care of myself right now. I can do it later. I need to take care of, you know, whoever else instead. Um, Caregivers might not have that luxury of later if they are, you know, eroding their immune system and losing the ability to stay healthy and strong. So um, it's... People sometimes feel that it's being selfish to take care of yourself, particularly when there's somebody else who needs assistance as well. Um, But it is very true that unless that caregiver is strong, they're not going to be around to take care of that other person who relies on them. And a lot of the research shows that uh, too many caregivers predecease their care recipient. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they die, and what happens to the person who needs care? And, you know, then it's, then it's another, you know, call in the middle of the night to some other family member who is not expecting to be, to, to be put in this role. So taking care of yourself um, really helps um, the person that you are caring for receive the kind of care you want them to have for longer. Now, many of, of the folks who are needing care uh, have mm-hmm. extended families who are uh, perhaps all over the country. We are so mobile these days. Uh, How does somebody manage long-distance caregiving, and how can age of Central Texas be helpful? 
Well, that mobility, strangely enough, I think can be an asset for families as they are thinking about the role that each family member can take in caregiving. We are so connected these days that it is um, entirely feasible for a brother or a sister across the country to take on all of the billing and the accounting um, for a parent. Um, you know, that can all be done online these days. So mobility, in a way, helps us out. Um, Long-distance caregiving, um, I, I think, really calls on families to have as good a communication system as possible. Um, we really encourage people to be open about what is going on in a caregiving situation, to make sure every member of a family hears it so that everybody feels part of the situation and feels like they can contribute to the situation. Um, so I think communication becomes the most important thing for families that have long-distance caregiving members. And yet many caregivers uh, don't reach out for help. When you ask, uh, are you okay? Oh, everything's fine. Don't worry. We don't, we don't need any help here. Right. Right. There's this phenomenon of burden worry where we don't want to be a burden on other people. And if you ask for help, it means that, you know, you're not, you can't take care of things yourself and that you are getting in the way of somebody else uh, taking care of their own life. Um, but I think, I think one of the things that we have learned is that as families work together to provide care, work to share the burden around, to share the responsibilities around, um, sometimes extended families develop better relationships out of this caregiving situation. I like that term, burden, worry. Uh, it, it, it's pretty typical among caregivers and families, is it not? It is very typical, and I think it's very typical, particularly of older adults. You know, we we all want our children and our grandchildren to um, live the fullest life possible, and sometimes people worry that um, having to stop and go to the doctor, run to the grocery store, manage medications, all of that gets in the way of living um, that full life. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that that giving younger family members the opportunity to fulfill those 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 roles really helps them to um, develop a greater sense of purpose and meaning in their life. A lot of times caregivers will say that, that caregiving is hard, it's draining, it's tiring, but it just makes them feel like they have um, really fulfilled some sort of higher purpose. Have we reached a point yet where uh, caregivers are beginning to self-identify themselves as caregivers? Well, we hope so. We are getting there gradually. Um, I still think the natural tendency, and I see this on social media blogs all the time, is that, you know, I'm just doing what any daughter would do. Um, but I think as more classes like Stress Busters for Caregivers, which I believe WellMed has, and yes. the powerful tools for caregivers that AGE has, I think as more people take those, they really start to recognize the uniqueness and the distinctness of this caregiving role. And the other is the void that uh, you fill and that caregiversos.org at the Wellman Chevrolet Foundation fills is a need for information on how to do this. We, we don't grow up knowing how to be a caregiver. Absolutely. As I think about raising my children, I, you know, had to go to a class before they could be born, and there were classes on how to treat them as they were toddlers. And goodness, when they went off to college, we went to classes about how to apply for college. Um, there are not a lot of those options available for caregivers, and it's it's a great thing that WellMed, that Age, that the area agencies on aging are really stepping in to give caregivers that concrete information. It is not 
you know, a natural role to us. It is not something that we instinctively know how to do. So um, all of this support just makes caregivers more effective in their job. You know, uh, Annette, since you're within the shadow of the legislature and the governor's mansion, uh, do you get much interest and support from the legislature for what you're doing? I think... um, I think aging and the needs of older Americans are becoming more and more um, visible in the political world. I think the just the economies of the cost of providing care and the amount of care that is needed um, is still a mountain that we just haven't figured out how to climb. Um, but I, you know, before anything can change, people need to be aware of it, and I do think that awareness is really growing. We got a couple minutes left, and before I let you go, I, I, we we touched briefly on ageism early on in the program. And if you've just joined us, we're talking with Annette Juba, who is the deputy director of Age of Central Texas up in Austin. I'm Ron Aaron on Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The Answer. Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment today, uh, talk to me a bit about ageism and the way in which we tend to negatively stereotype older people and how it affects them and the delivery of services to them. Absolutely. This is one of my favorite things to talk about with social work students when I go out to the University of Texas. Um, A lot of times older adults are, well, the, the, the ageist stereotypes out in the community are so visible. You know, the little old man, the little old woman, the person who can't keep up. And no older adult wants to live into that. So oftentimes, um, older adults, rather than um, expose themselves to the possibility of living into this stereotype, tend to just withdraw and not take the chance that they are going to um, look foolish or not be able to keep up. Um, So that's how older adults themselves sort of reinforce this aging stereotype. But we as professionals um, um, tend to unwittingly play into that when we assume that a person can't do something just because they are a certain age, when we don't give them the opportunity um, to make choices just because they have a diagnosis of dementia or have reached a certain age. Um, I think it's all done out of well-meaning, wanting to take good care of somebody, wanting to make sure that we give them the best. Um, But um, avoiding ageism means allowing people to make choices and to take an active role in their lives. I think one of the things I learned is that the two things that all of us want, no matter where we are in our life, is to have some sort of control and have some sort of say in what's going on. And uh, when we jump in and try to take care of a person's entire needs without um, checking in with what they want, what their preferences are, we are playing into that um, ageism that's out there in the world. So your suggestion is ask. Absolutely. Conversation, communication is the best thing. I have worked with older adults my whole career, and I can tell you that best conversations in the world I have had are with clients. Um, As much as young people today are fearful about the political and the economic world, um, our older adults have lived through similar situations and just as much stress, and they are a wealth of information on how you withstand, how you be resilient in the face of, you know, an uncertain economic and political world. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Absolutely. Hey, I want to thank you so much for those who uh, have been listening and they want to get more information about Age of Central Texas. Give us that website again. 
Thanks, Ron. Our website is www.ageofcentraltx.org. And you're exactly right. If somebody just Googles Age of Central Texas, we will pop up. Thank you. Enjoyed talking with you, Annette. You take care. I appreciate your time, and Age really appreciates all the support from the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Y'all have been a great partner with us. Well, I will pass that on to Carol as well, and she's a big booster of what you all do, so that's kind of neat to know. Well, thank you. Okay, Annette, you take care. You too. Bye-bye. Annette Juba, licensed clinical social worker, deputy director, Age of Central Texas, and we appreciate her coming on. Up next on Caregiver SOS on Air, Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us, nationally known clinical psychologist, expert on caregiving and addictions. Take 10 is next on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, what can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. We are rolling right along on Caregiver SOS On Air. We shift gears and flip to Take 10, which follows each of our Caregiver SOS On Air programs. I'm Ron Aaron. Joining us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, a specialist in addictions and deals with caregiving as well, and Carol Zerniel, our co-host here on Caregiver SOS On Air. And you've got a topic dealing with depression. Well, this came out of the New York Times. It was a headline that caught my eye that said, depression is poorly diagnosed and often goes untreated. And we do talk about depression from time to time. We've talked about it on the past on the show, but I don't, you know, I think it's important for everyone, everyone, everyone to to understand that uh, what depression is, what it isn't, and the, you know, that how detrimental it can be if left untreated. Um, and Jamie, this is, is right in the middle of, of your specialty. So why is it that depression is poorly diagnosed and why does it go untreated? Well, first of all, I don't want to get too deep into the psychosocial nature, the sociological issues around mental illness and shame and stigma and how it has become somewhat of a, you know, a concept that's detached from our health care. But you know, sadness is something that we all experience, Carol, and it's a normal reaction you know, to, to difficult times, and, and usually it does pass with time. I mean, we all have this sort of feeling that, you know, we have ups and downs in life, uh, but when a person has the, the per- depression, it interferes with their, their entire life, uh, daily functioning. Uh, it causes pain for people, and, and, you know, it's a real illness, and I think that's the most difficult thing for usually the patient. Uh, certainly psychiatrists understand this and, and neurologists and good physicians that this is a, 
a real illness, but it, you know, it's not a sign of a person's weakness or character flaw. So what we've done, I think, is short shrifted depression as opposed to heart conditions or kidney or endocrine, you know, or you name it, infectious disease issues. We've not seen it in the medical light, um, and so signs and symptoms are popping up all around us, and we we really need to understand it better. Now, speaking of understanding it, if you could give us the four one one on what is depression. Well, I guess I'm a symptomatic place, Ron. It's, it's, let's say you're feeling sad and anxious or have an empty mood. Um, that could be a situational depression, something that, when you say situational, obviously it means it's, a, it's, exa- it's exacerbated, uh, a condition that's already there. Feelings of hopelessness, you know, pessimism, guilt, worthlessness, helplessness. When these issues, you know, continue for uh, at least two weeks or greater, and that is what we say in the DSM-5, is the the clinical criteria for assessment and evaluation when these loss of interest and and pleasure in life and decreased energy and sleep patterns are in the disarray this is when we really need to go get the proper assessment and evaluation and again all too often we seem to be doing that sometimes with our with our primary care physician instead of a a well-trained psychiatrist dsm-5 is what well, that's called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Psychology. It's how we actually code disorders and, and clinical issues, uh, much like the CPT codes. But this is how we, we describe to mostly insurance industry, if you will, and, and uh, you know, medical necessity in our world, psychological necessity. Well, you know, depression is important for caregivers to know about because it often goes hand in hand with a chronic illness. We know that what we call comorbidity, both depression and diabetes, having depression and Alzheimer's, having depression and cancer, that depression, you know, really is, uh, you know, a companion of so many chronic illnesses. And we treat the chronic illness, but we're not doing anything for the depression, and what the New York Times is saying is that of those, even when they diagnose depression, only about 28% of the people get any treatment at all, which means the vast majority of people aren't getting anything for their depression that goes along with everything else. And that's a huge shame because depression, even the most severe cases, Carol, are, uh, is extraordinarily treatable. I mean, we've come a long way in the world of psychopharmacology and therapy and understanding the biopsychosocial nature of, of depression. Um, you know, most adults, you know, see improvement in their, in their symptoms when they use an antidepressant medication. It, it should not be looked at as something that alters a person's state of consciousness. Medication should be looked at as something that replaces the serotonin, which, you know, the neurotransmitter that it, you know, issues like, I don't want to get too deep into it, like GABA and norepinephrine or epinephrine in our brains. That's what the medication does. It just picks up where... Uh, our body has a deficit. Well, I can remember we applied for a grant to look at what just primary care physicians could do in addressing depression because it is so prevalent, um, particularly in the elderly population. And at WellMed, we see mostly older patients. Um, And the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, that had the grant, the reviewer came back to us and said, well, you know, that's really not interesting enough to study. 
Um, you know, we needed something that was sexy or something more interesting, some good multiple personality disorder, schizophrenia, you know, something with a good big name that you could, that was really affects a small number of people. Tiny number. As opposed to the large population of people that we see that have depression. So, you know, when I, I think about it, that that's a huge problem, um, within our government that's supposedly looking out for the health care of folks that they're not recognizing depression as something that is you know should be looked at more closely hold that thought dr jamie let me remind folks who've just joined us you're listening to take 10 on caregiver sos on air on 9 30 a.m the answer dr jamie heisman ron aaron and carol zerniel are with you now jamie no it's sad to say you know hear what you're saying which is totally true and major depressive disorder, I think it's the most common mental disorder in the United States, literally. I mean, and people just do not want to feel alone. Uh, the issues of chronic illness, which, you know, and, 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 and how it disconnects us from society, one take 10 that we recently did, um, it, it really is it's a difficult thing to, to, to not be treated, not to be assessed and evaluated, and, and not to get the proper, you know, psychopharmacological remedy. Living with depression is overwhelming. And what you said with the, the issues of comorbidity, we, we don't know which comes first, but we feel much more comfortable in treating the medical issue and then just leaving the psychological issue for the family, friends, if you will, and people around them to deal with. Because they don't see depression as a brain disease. They don't. And yet, you know, if you're really uh, strong in, in what you do, and I think at WellMed and other, obviously, good medical delivery systems that understand that depression can put somebody right into the hospital um, and, and or, or the anxiety associated with the depression, we're now looking at it closer and, and closer. And, and to your point, Carol, you know, you're right. Uh, I don't know why they didn't think it was sexy enough to kind of like our, our current elections, I guess, that you have to do things so over the top to get noticed. Uh, but primary care doctors should be trained very extensively by psychiatrists to understand, you know, depression, because that's going to be the first doorway somebody will go through. So what is it going to take to move, to get rid of the stigma associated with mental illness? Why is it we're still, you know, disassociating the head with the rest of our body when it comes to physical health? Because obviously our brains are kind of important with regard to our physical health. Well, I hope it doesn't take the same celebrity, you know, sort of red carpet stuff where we have to come out with a Ronald Reagan and Alzheimer's or Patty Duke and bipolar. I, that's extraordinarily helpful. Don't get me wrong. It normalizes in people's minds that, you know, depression is, is a part of somebody's life. Um, but I think that we really have to start doing what you're saying, the, the non-sexy programs, to understand the persistency of depression in society, and especially in our senior population. I think we need to do really concerted studies uh, in primary care environments, if you will, uh, of exactly how this reduces costs, creates better quality of life for the person, and actually better quality of you know, delivery of care. It just has to be normalized. And I think to do that, obviously, there's a lot of public service announcements that need to occur and a lot of organizations that need to get involved. Uh, the National Alliance of the Mentally Ill, uh, I've been you know, part of that organization for almost 35 years, is, is one great one. There's mental health associations. But they can't do it in their own silos. They do need other groups to bring them into the mainstream. 
Well, on the good news front, there are medical groups like WellMed who are making depression screening part of the annual exam so that we do get a baseline. We can tell if someone's getting worse, and if somebody does score poorly, they can get referred for assistance. Got to stop you both right there. Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Ron Aaron along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zorniel. We appreciate you joining us. Remember, podcasts of all of our shows are available, including Take 10, which can be a standalone podcast as well. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner, Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there.